Good morning. It's good to see you all here this morning and enjoying this beautiful day. And I trust that you've come more looking for more than just um, the enjoyment of a beautiful day. I come trust that you have come looking to learn something from the Word, to hear the Word of God explained, and to allow the Spirit of God to work in our hearts and in our minds to transform us. That really is the purpose for gathering week by week for worship, whether it's on Wednesdays for our Bible study and prayer time, or the Iwana program, or kept together for church and Sunday school on a Sunday. It's not just to have something to fill up an hour's worth of time with. We can all find that. We're coming to really interact with the Lord Jesus Christ and His Spirit and to allow the Spirit of God to teach us and transform us and to make us into the kind of people that God wants us to be. So thank you for being here today. Open your Bibles, please, to Isaiah chapter 52. I have mentioned before that Isaiah kind of divides into two parts. The first 39 chapters... Um, there's a lot of, of judgment there. God calls the nations around Israel uh, to repentance. God calls Israel to repentance. Uh, there certainly are passages in that portion of Scripture that look to the future and that talk about hope and salvation, but the first 39 chapters primarily are chapters of, of judgment, of bringing the world to face with itself and to see that the world and even, unfortunately, the nation of Israel is far from God. From chapter 40 on, the emphasis is on comfort. The emphasis is on the change that God is effecting, not only in Israel, His own people, but in all the world. Some have said the Bible can be compared to the book of Isaiah, the first 39 books of the Old Testament, God, certainly He announces hope, but He is constantly bringing a word of, of condemnation and change that's needed to not only His chosen people Israel, but to the whole world. We have there the, the fact that man has sinned and is separated from God, and we have an illustration of the need for a blood sacrifice to deal with the sin of mankind. But it's left kind of unfinished. Because, as we discover in the book of Hebrews, the blood of bulls and goats never did take away sin. It was a temporary covering. It was something that pointed to something greater. And in chapter 40 of Isaiah through 66, corresponding to the New Testament, Matthew through Revelation, points to the culmination of our salvation, of what God has done, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with the blood of His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it culminates in the new heavens and the new earth. And so Isaiah is kind of a whole Bible in miniature. Now as we come to this passage in Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13 and continuing on to Isaiah 53, verse 12, 
we find ourselves in the very center of what I'll call the New Testament portion, the second portion of Isaiah. Right in the very heart of it. And it focuses not by accident on how God is solving the problem or has solved the problem of mankind's sin. It's through Jesus Christ, my servant. We looked at some servants in Isaiah, didn't we? Last time we talked a little bit about King Cyrus. Cyrus was the Medo-Persian king that God raised up to deliver his own people from captivity in Babylon. The tragedy was that although Cyrus was God's anointed servant, Cyrus never knew the one living and true God. Cyrus, from his perspective, thought that everything that he did was by his own wisdom and his own might and his own glory and power. Cyrus was completely wrong. He was completely ignorant of the great, one, true, living God who used him to accomplish not Cyrus's purposes, but God's purposes to deliver Israel from Babylonian captivity. We saw Israel as the servant of God. But in Isaiah 52, and we did, or 42, and we didn't get a chance to look at that last week, but God laments that his servant is deaf and blind. He says, who is blind like my servant? And who is deaf like my servant? Why would he say that of, of Israel, who was chosen to be God's servant? Well, because they rejected God. Because they turned a blind eye and a deaf ear to him. God gave them the law. He gave them the glorious processes of the temple and all of its sacrifices and all of the, the signs and symbols that pointed to what God was doing. But Israel just went through the motions at best. Oh, there were a few like Isaiah and others who, who got it. King David certainly did in, Isaiah, in Psalm 51. He says, sacrifice and, and burnt offerings you do not desire. Else I would have brought them. The thing that God desires is a broken and contrite heart. So there were a few that got it, but Israel for the most part didn't. They were blind. They were deaf. But there is that third servant in Isaiah introduced for us there in chapter 42 and other places going all the way back into the first part you know, I said the first part of Isaiah had little glimpses of hope. So go all the way back to chapter 7 and chapter 9 and chapter 11 and others, and you see little glimpses of this one who would come, who would be the servant of God, who would be successful as that servant, who would accomplish all of God's will concerning redemption, salvation. And we're going to see that servant presented here in a way that just astounds us to think about it. It's proven to be a stumbling block for millions. People ask, and, and I'm, I'm 
thankful for the uh, presentation this morning. People ask, why doesn't God do something about evil? Why doesn't God do something about mankind's rebellion? Why doesn't God do something about all the bad stuff? He has. He already has. Now if we choose to miss it and reject it and become blind and deaf like Israel or like Cyrus who never knew God, well that certainly is our choice. But what God has done is evident, and it's no more evident than it is here in this passage as God unfolds in tremendous detail how He is solving the problem of sin, wickedness, evil, rebellion, all of those things. He has solved it in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's look at the passage together. Chapter 52, verse 13, we have the mystery of the Messiah. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. I'm so glad that this is how God revealed to Isaiah the way this portion should begin. Because what we're going to see as we work through here is almost the picture opposite of this. It looks like disaster. It looks like defeat. It looks like something that shouldn't have happened. But at the very beginning, God wants us to pay careful attention. That's what the word behold means. It means look at this carefully. Pay attention. Wake up. Take notice. My servant shall deal prudently. What Jesus was going to do was going to be exactly the right thing. It was going to be exactly what God intended for him to do. Jesus is acting with wisdom in all of his public ministry. He shall be exalted and extolled and very high. These words kind of all piling on top of each other give the impression, and, the, and this is a right impression, of someone who is continually lifted up and made to be greater than anyone or anything else. And could we not see in this threefold exaltation the resurrection, the ascension, and the glorification, the exaltation of Jesus Christ on the throne at the Father's right hand. I think that's exactly what Isaiah intends for us to understand. Now, we'll, we'll only understand it from our New Testament perspective. That's the thing about prophecy. It's most clearly understood after the events recorded there have taken place. And we can look back and we can say, that's what that was. <coughs> and yet... This servant, as it's unfolded here, Isaiah and everybody around him should have known that this servant, whatever those stages might represent, is going to be exalted and very high. In fact, this servant is exalted to the place of God. He's not a mere man. He's God. 
in the flesh. And if you read the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, you'd understand that, wouldn't you? Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. You see how God's put this book together? There it is. Little glimpses, even in the midst of judgment, little glimpses of, of hope, and now it's beginning to be unfolded in even more splendor and glory for people to see. Just as many were astonished at you, God the Father is the one who's speaking here. Who's this you to whom he is speaking? Well, there's a... There's a translation issue here in that last word, whether it should be you or him. If it is him, it refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the Hebrew, the, the, the consonants are the same. It's just the vowels that make the difference. And so the, if it's him, it refers to Jesus. Just as many as were astonished at him, that is the Messiah, but I think it's probably best translated as it is here, you. And it's a reference, I think, to the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was an astonishment to the people of its day. I mean, they were a bunch of slaves coming up out of Egypt, right? Nobody ever expected them to get out of Egypt. But God got them out of Egypt. They were just kind of a, a ragtag bunch of folks that really didn't have a lot of uh, military expertise or training, and so when they showed up on the other side of Jordan, opposite Jericho, nobody really ever expected them to be able to conquer everything. And yet they did. Israel has been a source of amazement and irritation to the world ever since God called them into existence. And they keep coming back, don't they? Consider what has happened to the nation of Israel since Titus in 70 AD destroyed Jerusalem and scattered them all over the world. They have gone all over the world. There's, there's hardly a nation on the face of the earth that does not have someone there of Jewish descent. And yet, from 70 A.D. until 1948, when Israel became once again a nation recognized on the face of the earth, they maintained their culture, they maintained language, they maintained heritage, they maintained connections, they functioned as a nation dispersed. No other nation in history has, able, has ever been able to do that. When nations are conquered, when kingdoms fall, what happens? Well, they become absorbed by whomever they've conquered, and, and they begin to lose identity, and they begin to lose culture and heritage and language and all of those things. How many have seen any Hittites around lately? Not too many. But Israel has survived. And that's an astonishment. That's a mystery. 
And even though the vast majority are still in unbelief today, they are still God's chosen people. And God is not finished with them yet. And that will be an astonishment. So that becomes the background for the astonishment that the world will experience at the Messiah. Just as many were astonished at you, Israel, so his visage was marred more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. When Jesus appeared before Pilate, he had already been beaten and abused. He had already been whipped, spat upon. And finally, when Pilate tries to elicit some sympathy from the, the people who were there that day for Jesus to be crucified, he brings him out and he's standing there and I don't think any artwork has done any justice to it. He's standing there beaten and bloodied and, and hardly recognizable so that Pilate says, Behold the man. Now if you look at the the Latin translation, it just says, Behold, a man. Like, this is a human being here. Can you not have pity? And of course then when Pilate says, What shall I do with him? To his astonishment, they cried, Crucify him. There was no pity. There was no feeling of sorrow, remorse, only hatred and vengeance and a desire for death. His visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. <laughs> That's an interesting word in Hebrew. The root word means to cause something to leap. And it's used a lot in Hebrew or in Leviticus and Numbers, talking about sprinkling the blood of the sacrifice. It's used in other places for an astonishment. You know, have you ever been in a situation where you saw something or you heard something and physically you just leaped up out of your chair? It, it was so astounding that you just you got up. Can you remember where you were 20 years ago yesterday? When I heard what was happening, I was in the process of giving a piano lesson to a young fellow who was just getting started. And he wanted to, of course, mom and dad wanted to see if you know this is going to stick. And I said, yeah, I can probably teach him enough to, you know, get him that far along. And I remember that then uh, I was at Waynesburg Grace Brother Church. And Joyce Fitz, my secretary at the time, came into the sanctuary and she said what had happened. Now, part of it was I wanted to get up and go see what was happening, but the other part was just shock. It's like, oh, you're kidding. And, and you just, you, you, you rise in astonishment and amazement. And I think that's how this word is being used here. He's going to cause nations to leap to their feet 
in astonishment, and might I add, terror. Notice what it says. Kings shall shut their mouths at him, for what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. When Jesus Christ comes back to this earth, and we, his bride, come back with him, and the nations are gathered there in Armageddon, and they're ready to destroy Israel, and they're ready to wage war against God Himself, and Jesus appears in the heavens, the whole world is going to be astonished. They're going to be startled. They're going to be caused to leap. Because what they had not considered, what they had not wanted to deal with, is now going to be suddenly right there in front of them. Remember what people do with truth in Romans 1? They willfully suppress it. They don't want it. They stomp it down. But beloved, the day is going to come when Jesus Christ is going to split the sky and He's going to be visible to all the earth. And they are going to be absolutely astonished and terrified at His coming. Now that's the introduction to what happens before that. I want us to understand that, that God is going to glorify His Son. He's going to glorify His servant. But there is a principle that's involved that you and I experience every day. It's this. Humility comes before exaltation. We've seen a glimpse of the exaltation. We're going to get a little bit more in verses 10, 11, and 12 of the 53rd chapter. But right now, we're going to take a look at the humiliation of the servant and what happens before the exaltation can begin to take place. Here is the mystery, the rejection of the Messiah. Isaiah is writing, he says, Who has believed our report? And to whom, of the arm, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, that's the servant, Messiah, shall grow up before him, that's God the Father, as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Here is the rejection of the Messiah. He comes into this world as a babe. And God announces that to the shepherds out on the hillside. And they go and they receive it with joy. But what's the rest of the world doing? Sleeping? Not really paying attention? And sometime later when wise men come and go to Jerusalem and inquire where is he that's born king of the Jews, what does Herod want to do? Herod wants to kill him. And commands the slaughter of the baby boys there in and around Bethlehem from the age of two and under according to the time that he heard from the wise men. 
Nobody wanted Jesus. They didn't want him to come. He was despised and rejected. He was acquainted with grief. And we hid from him. How many people like to hang around folks that are grieving? Not too many. You know, they're hurting. And it makes us uncomfortable. Jesus came and he was hurting. The heart of God was breaking because of the sin of man. But nobody wanted to be associated with Jesus. Nobody wanted to be around him. And so they hid from him. It says he has no form or comeliness. There were a period of time when artists decided that they needed to paint Jesus as kind of misshapen and, and ugly. I don't think that's it at all. He doesn't come like a king ought to come. He doesn't come with blaring trumpets and <coughs> marching armies and banners and bands playing and people singing his praises. He doesn't come like that. He comes as a baby. A normal, ordinary, human baby. And, and when he began his public ministry, he wasn't putting signs out in people's front yards saying, vote for me. He, he didn't rent the, the local hall and, and hold big rallies and stuff like that. He went out among the poor and he touched the lepers and he healed people with diseases. And he went to lunch the sinners. Oh my goodness. And it was an offense. And so the religious crowd said, we don't want this guy. This guy. No. And they turned from him. And they wouldn't pay any attention to what he was doing. They rejected him. And so it's not looking so good, is it? But it gets even worse. Chapter, yeah, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here is the full satisfactory payment. The substitutionary payment of the Messiah. He was rejected. But that's okay. Because he came to do a job. He came for a purpose. And that purpose was to die on the cross in your place, in my place, in the place of every human being ever conceived. He took our place. And it is a, here's a fancy word for you, but it, it's easy to remember. It's a propitiation. It's a full and complete payment. 
a full and complete payment for sin. He took our griefs, he carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. Everything that sin has messed up in your life, Jesus has carried that weight for you. He is the full and complete satisfactory payment for your sin. Remember Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus? He wept, didn't he? You say, my goodness, why did he weep? Because Jesus understood all the impact that sin has had upon our lives, upon humanity. He understood it. And it broke his heart. Now that's somebody you ought to be able to come to, isn't it? That's somebody that understands your hurts, that understands your sorrows, that understands your griefs, that understands your shame. That's somebody that has you at the center of their heart. We, we didn't get it, but that's what Jesus was doing. By His stripes, we are healed. Sometimes, we can experience that kind of physical healing in this life, and there are those of us here this morning that can uh, give testimony to that. We've, we've, been, we've experienced a healing from God, and, and what a great blessing that is. But beloved, that's not really what's ultimately in view here. I think it's included, but it's not the, the complete picture. The complete picture is when we are with the Lord Jesus Christ enjoying our brand new resurrected body, a body that is not susceptible to the sins of this world and the consequences of those sins, a body that is fully prepared for eternity, in full health and vigor and strength and whatever God needs to give to us so that we can enjoy eternity. By His stripes, we have... Eternity. We have hope. We have everlasting life. We have freedom from all of the stuff that so spoils and mars this world. By His stripes, we are healed. Verse 7, we see the submission of the Messiah. This was not something that was forced upon Jesus. Okay? There were lots of people crucified in ancient history. Probably still are some today. But it's forced upon them. They don't want it. It's not something that they're willing to experience. That was not true for Jesus. Remember when he prayed in the garden? He said, Father, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. There was a willing submission on the part of Jesus to go through the cross to accomplish the will of the Father 
in a willing, submission, submissive fashion. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now let's make sure we don't misunderstand that. That does not mean that Jesus never spoke. Because he did speak, didn't he? We can look into the Gospels and we see where, you know, Jesus before the Sanhedrin, Pilate, or uh, Caiaphas stands up and says, I demand you tell us whether or not you're the Son of God. And Jesus speaks, doesn't he? He says, you're right. I am. And furthermore, you're going to see me coming on clouds of glory. And Caiaphas tears his robe and he says, what need more, what have we of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. Well, it wasn't blasphemy. Jesus was speaking the truth. Jesus spoke. Jesus spoke to Pilate, didn't he? He said, when Pilate said to him, you don't talk to me. Don't you understand that I, I have power to let you go or I have power to kill you? Jesus spoke and he says, you wouldn't have any power at all unless it came to you from the Father above. But what did Jesus never say? He never once objected to the injustice of everything that was happening to him. Not a word of complaint. He was absolutely silent on that matter. He was that sacrificial lamb. Lambs had been led to the temple for hundreds of years before then. In fact, they were being led to the temple as Jesus hung on the cross. And those lambs were silent and they stood there and they got their throat slit and the blood was collected and put on the altar and all of the ceremony was going through even as Jesus was hanging on the cross out there outside of Jerusalem on Calvary's hill. Jesus never once ever once spoke against what was happening to him. He always gave testimony to the truth, but he was absolutely silent about the injustice of all that was happening to him. Notice verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people he was stricken. Jesus endured six trials. All six trials. Three Jewish, three Roman. All three of the Jewish trials were illegal. They were at night. They required testimony from the one who was accused. The full Sanhedrin was not met together. All of those trials should have been thrown out. And even then, they could not find a legitimate reason to put him to death. Every single time, he was, he was not guilty. The three Roman trials, while they were legitimate trials, according to Roman law, nevertheless, Pilate, Herod, Pilate, in that order, said not guilty. Now where's the justice in that? That he ended up on the cross anyway. From a human perspective, 
That was the most gross miscarriage of justice this world has ever seen. Six times, Jesus is declared not guilty, and he's killed that Notice the very end of it. It says, they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. On the south side of Jerusalem, there's a valley called Gehenna. And it was, at that time, the trash dump of Jerusalem. And there was always a fire burning there. Uh, you, I mean, we don't see it so much anymore, but I remember as a little boy, I'd go to the Washington County landfill with my dad, and occasionally he would get there, and, you know, part of it would be burning. It would be on fire, and they'd, they'd have paper stuff and combustible things there, and it would, it would burn, and other stuff was just kind of piled into a pile and buried. We do things a lot differently now than we did, you know, 50 plus years ago. But in that time, that was the way to get rid of the, the trash. Was take it down there to Gehenna, where there were always fires burning, and the trash was thrown out and consumed, and that's just where you did it. They did something else, too. You know, the problem with a big city is you've always got people that have no money, and they have the audacity to die in their city. And then the city fathers have to do something. Well, all these transients, all these criminals that come to Jerusalem, we're just, there, there's no family, nobody's claiming the bodies, we're certainly not going to bury them at a significant expense. Throw them on the trash heap. Take them out there to Gehenna. And that's what they did. And that's exactly what the Sanhedrin wanted to do with Jesus. He was assigned with the wicked. That was the final, most ignominious act that they could come up with. Once we've got him dead, we're going to show everybody what we think of him. We're going to throw him on the trash heap and be done with him. But God intervenes. God intervenes. It's almost as if after the crucifixion was completed, God says, all right, you've handled the body of my son as much as you're going to. You're not going to touch him anymore. And so he was buried in a tomb. And Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who was also a member of the Sanhedrin and was, was recognizing that Jesus is the Messiah, they came forward and took the body and wrapped him in spices and wrappings and, and put him in the tomb. And they honored him. That was God the Father honoring him. Though he was crucified with, a criminal, with two criminals, he was not a criminal. Though he endured great injustice, it was not forever to be injustice. God steps in and makes a distinction. And now we begin with the exaltation of the Messiah in verse 10. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make your soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You mean there's more to come? 
after he has been bruised, after he has made his soul an offering for sin, you mean there's more to come for this servant? Absolutely. There is more to come. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross was not the end of the story. It might be the most critical part of the story as regards our sin and the payment for our sin, but there's a lot more to come and we will rejoice in it because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Notice what it says here in verse 12. Therefore I will divide a portion, him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. God is exalting Jesus Christ and you and I share in that exaltation because we have come to know him as our Savior. We have put our trust in him. We have believed that what he did on the cross, what was foretold he would do on the cross, and what he accomplished was done for our benefit, was done for us. And that therefore the invitation to come to God through Jesus Christ on, on God's terms means that we share in the exaltation and the glorification of his Son the perfect servant. If we had time, we could go on to chapter 54, which starts out and says, Sing, O barren, you who have not born, break forth into singing. From here through the rest of chapter 54, we see some of the results of the exaltation of Christ. We see some of the consequences for Israel that there's going to be a restoration of Israel. They're going to come to know the Messiah as their Savior. But this portion in chapter 52, verse 13 through 53, 12, that's the very heart, the very center, the very core of what God was doing in Jesus on the cross at Calvary, making Him our sacrifice, our substitute for our sin so that with Him we can be exalted and glorified. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Paul talks a lot about that in Romans. I wish we had time. But beloved, here's the, here's the question for us today. Here's the important focus. Do you know this Jesus? Do you know this servant who has come and died in your place and taken your guilt and sin and shame and all those things upon himself so that you might go free? He did it willingly. It was a terrible, terrible humiliation. And he was willfully misunderstood. And he was rejected. And God the Father poured out His wrath upon His own innocent Son who stood there in our place taking the punishment of wrath upon Himself so that we who would believe in Him might go free. That's why Jesus said in the upper room, I am the way, 
the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you know this servant for your Savior? If not, you can. It's very simple. It's, it's an acknowledgement of the facts. It's an acknowledgement of what God has clearly done. He, he foretold it in the Old Testament. He accomplished it as we see it recorded for us in the Gospels. And, and the invitation is open to us today to come to Jesus Christ. Take my yoke upon you, he says, and learn of me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. There's a reason we memorize these verses. Beloved, there is no greater demonstration of God's love. There is no de greater demonstration of God's willingness to forgive us of our sin than what we see pictured here in the very heart of Isaiah's prophecy. Jesus has died for you. He has raised from the, been raised from the dead for you. He is coming again for you if you know Him. And if you want to know Him, it's so simple, you cry out and say, God, I believe every word that your book says. Have mercy on me, a sinner, and He will have mercy on you. And He will forgive you, and He will make you His child. You will become a joint heir with Jesus Christ. And you can do that right now where you're sitting, in the quietness of your heart. Just ask God to forgive you, and He will. If you do that, we'd love to rejoice with you, and you're, you're always welcome, you know, anybody's welcome to come forward at the close of the service and, and request prayer if you'd like, or just, you know, let us know that you've trusted in Christ as your Savior. We're going to rejoice with you. That's the greatest decision you could ever possibly make. And we will rejoice and give thanks to God for that. Let's pray together. And then we're going to sing. Heavenly Father, your word is just filled with truth. And, and, and your word is truth. And Father, I pray that you have opened the hearts and minds of all of us here today that we might be able to grasp how great your love is for fallen people. Father, we look at this world and we see that there's an awful lot of evil here and we're just astounded. How in the world can all this just keep happening? And Lord, we only see the expression of evil in our own lives, in our own time. When Jesus came, He dealt with evil for all time. From the rebellion of Adam to the rebellion of all of mankind, even up to the day He returns. Father, I can't begin to fathom how great that pile of evil must be. I just can't comprehend it. But Lord, what's even more amazing is that you shed your blood to cleanse us from all of it. We give you thanks and praise. I ask, Father, that if someone's here today and they don't know Jesus as their Savior, that they'll turn to him right now. 
and experience that forgiveness that only you can provide. And experience that joy that only you can provide. That sin is forgiven. That heaven and eternal life is open and available. Father, do a great work in this body of people here today. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.